the Appendix N Podcast, Episode 26, The Golgotha Dancers by Manly Wade Wellman, and The Pygmy Planet by Jack Williamson. Welcome to the Appendix N Podcast, a Tome Show production. My name is Jeffrey Wynn. Once upon a time, there was a man named Gary Gygax, and together with his friends and colleagues, he created Dungeons and Dragons. In the 1979 Dungeon Master's Guide, Gygax included a list of books and stories to be inspirational reading to those who would master the dungeons of fantasy. Every episode of Appendix N features a different story or collection of stories. Together with my co-host, Jeff Wickstrom, and my guests, we lay bare the dusty secrets of these forgotten tomes and speculate how they may have influenced the first edition of the world's most popular role-playing game. If you would like to be part of the show, you can email the host of The Tome Show, Jeff Greiner, at thetomeshow at gmail.com. Listen to the end of the episode for a list of some upcoming stories. Before we get to the program, let us take a moment to mention our sponsor, Noble Knight, online retailer of new and out-of-print role-playing games, war games, board games, and miniatures. Since 1997, they have helped thousands of gamers from around the world save money and find exactly what they need. You can find them on the web at www.noblenight.com. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Jeff Wickstrom. Uh, Hello. Is everybody ready for a, for a spooky Halloween spooktacular? I, I think we're this probably this is probably going to air well after Halloween, but sure, I'll, I, I'll I'll be scared. Well, it's 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 2015, so there might be a DeLorean around somewhere that we can hijack to travel back in time to Halloween. It's the podcast may be you know spookily not current in terms of uh, of timing. That that could be spooky. <laughs> That could yeah. be spooky. All right, and we have a we have a spooky new guest with us tonight. Uh, welcome to the show, Lewis Brenton. Hey, everybody! Thanks for having me, Lewis. This is your is your first time on the show, so please tell the listeners who are you, what do you like to do, and what do you like to read. Although I feel like we've already missed a trick by not introducing you as like the ghost of Lewis Brenton or something like that. Yeah, it's a shame. It's probably too late to go back. Opportunities passed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my name's Lewis Brenton. I live in the Memphis, Tennessee area. Uh, I grew up playing role-playing games from a very, very early age. Uh, I played Dungeons and Dragons when I was eight, nine, ten years old back in the early eighties. Um, played a lot of other role-playing games as well. Uh, actually, had the distinction of getting to have dinner with Gary Gygax as a teenager, oh and uh, did. Yeah, didn't appreciate that as much as I should have because I was a young idiot. But yeah, I got to sit at the same dinner table with Gary Gygax one time, and uh, I'm al- I've always been a big reader. Uh, I've loved to read my whole life. Uh, my grandmother, who raised me, took me to the library every single week, and I'd bring home a pile of books. So I've always been a very hungry reader. And uh, I came across y'all's podcast a few months ago and really enjoyed listening to it. And I re- appreciate your invitation to be on today. What's your What's your favorite book, Lewis? Favorite book ever? Ever. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, Lord of the Rings has got to be really, really high on that. Excellent. I know that's kind of the stereotypical answer, but it's just the truth. You know? it, it is the absolute truth, and uh, you'll, you'll, you'll be my first consideration to, to be on the, the Lord of the Rings episode when, when we get there in, in about five years. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. What uh, is your favorite part of Halloween? My favorite part of Halloween? Um... Honestly, we do a lot of family stuff around Halloween, so like this coming weekend, my uh, my my wife and my kids and some extended family we have here in Memphis are all going to be going to a big corn maze event and running around and just having a good time. My kids are just past the trick-or-treating age, and so we're exploring what Halloween means to us this year as a family with older kids for the first time. You, you, you realize this awesome. is not a Halloween episode, Jeff. <laughs> yeah, it's a Halloween It's not a Halloween episode only to the extent that you refuse to let it be a Halloween episode. It wants to be a Halloween episode. Can you not feel that spooky energy in the air? The ghosts, the goblins, the liches, the whatever Charlie Brown was that was covered with eyes. 
All right. Well, no, the... all, they all they all want you to join them, Jeff. They all want every, you. Every us. day should be Halloween. Okay. Well, li- listeners, happy Thanksgiving. Enjoy this special Halloween episode. <laughs> Merry Christmas. <laughs> all right. Presidents. And, and also, uh, also haunting us tonight is Jeremiah McCoy. Welcome back, Jeff. I mean, Jeremiah. My goodness. There are a lot of J's in our, our, our lineup lately. Uh, hi, how's it going? Uh, I am currently not wearing a costume, but I usually look pretty scary. That helps. I can I can testify. I'm I'm looking at your at your Facebook uh, profile picture right right now. It is it is it is horrifying. Awesome. All right, awesome. we have See, we have more J's tonight is, than J Jonah Jameson. This is the spirit nope. of Halloween. Actually, we've got the same number. Never mind. Fewer, really, if you look at it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> okay. Uh, we have and there's more... nothing special about that. We <laughs> always have fewer J's than J. Jonah Jameson. I don't know why you brought it up, Jeff. <laughs> we, we, <laughs> we, we have more J's than J.J. J. Abrams. Again, that's not technically speaking accurate. We have the same number of J's as J.J. J. Abrams. <laughs> <laughs> that's true i'm i keep forgetting i'm i'm, I'm not a J. I wow. i feel like this is something that you should really be well aware of the fact that your name starts with the g this is a pretty horrifying episode so far the reason that, <laughs> the reason that uh that our, our our introduction tonight is so long is because the stories we are talking about tonight are going to be very very short uh, the the reason that the episode is is shaping up this way in in the first place is there, there's actually a number of of reasons. Um, the the appendix N is frustratingly vague in a number of places. A lot of the authors on there are super obscure. At at least to me, they they may have been readily available in on on bookstore shelves in in 1974. Uh, but when I when I came across uh, Manly Wade uh, Wellman. Uh, he is he is one of the authors that Gygax does not list any uh, titles of books for, uh, and uh, Wikipedia lists an 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 awful lot of uh, stories, but it's it's really hard to figure out which which ones we're going to do for this for this show. Uh, fortunately, since the since since we began a, 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 the Appendix N show, Wizards of the Coast put out the fifth edition. Player's Handbook, and the fifth edition Player's Handbook has, in the back of it, on page three hundred twelve, it has Appendix E, and Appendix E is an updated version of Appendix N. It it adds a lot more authors, and all of the authors that Gygax did not give titles for, it it at least gives suggested titles. So for Manly Wade Wellman, Appendix E suggests the Golgotha Dancers. And I looked Mainly up because it's it, it's in the public domain and therefore you can get read it for free. I I, I suppose that was the reason. Uh, Golgotha Dancers is not even mentioned on uh, Wellman's Wikipedia page. Um, so so when when I looked up the Golgotha Dancers, I realized this this it, it's extremely short. It it's it's even shorter than uh, the Martian Odyssey that we did a few episodes back. And so I, I decided to to add on one uh, other story that was recommended uh, for for Jack Williamson, uh, the 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 Pygmy Planet. Um, so we, we we usually don't go, we we try not to go back in time with this with this show. Uh, but the the Pygmy Planet was actually written before the Legion of Space that we that we previously talked about. Um, so these, so these are these are probably the last times we're going to talk about either Manly Wade Wellman or Jack Williamson. Um, I I feel like uh, I should point out if if people are willing to pay for for the books because and we're going to quickly run out of things in the public domain at some point. Mm-hmm. But well, yeah, the, the, the Hobbit there. is coming up very, very soon. Yeah, uh, but uh, the if you're looking for some print, Manly Wade Wellman, there is a collection that actually probably would more closely relate to D&D, and that's uh, Battle in the Dawn. 
and they currently have a collection of that out uh, from Paizo, and it features his uh, prehistoric first human hero. Was was that part of their Planet Stories line? Yeah. Excellent. Uh, huh. Thank you. Interesting. So that that I mean that that ties in uh, to what I was I was going to say. Uh, since since this is the last time we're probably going to talk about either uh, Wellman or uh, Williamson on on this show, if if any of you out there listeners, if, if you if you have knowledge of, of of the of these authors that that goes beyond what we what we've talked about, if if you feel that there is a story that we should talk about and it's it's just a crime against humanity that that we are skipping it, please, dear listeners, do do let us know uh, your your guidance. Uh, on these matters is is helpful. Uh, likewise, with, with some of the others that uh, other authors that we've been we, that we've been sparse on, like um, Lord Lord Dunsany. Uh, I, I sort of wish that we had done uh, Gods of Pagania, but I, I just I just don't think we have time in the schedule to to, to go back and and do that. Uh, but if 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 there are any uh, stories or or books that that we skip as we're as we're doing this show, listeners. Uh, I, I leave it to you to uh, let us let us know, uh, and maybe you can. I, I will have you write in like a short review, or maybe even uh, record something and and send it to us, and maybe we can we can do things that way. Okay. Uh, before we get um, to the stories, I, I just want to read. Uh, we 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 got some fan mail from Paul from Wisconsin. And he writes, just wanted to tell you that the Appendix N installments of the Tome Show podcast have quickly become my favorite, and I genuinely look forward to each release. Your content is always entertaining, insightful, and sometimes downright funny. I appreciate the fact that many times you review stories that are out of copyright and thus are available for free online. Well, we'll be, we'll be running out of those shortly, Paul. Um... I've been interested in Conan since grade school, but I always had trouble reading and understanding the original stories. Listening to your Conan reviews inspired me to pull my dusty book down off the shelf and give it another try. I am happy I did because now that I am older, I can now read and enjoy the stories. Jules of Gualer is, is a favorite of mine, and I will be interested to hear what you all thought of it. Um, thank you, Paul, for your for your kind words. Um, by, by now... Uh, the, the episode that we did featuring uh, Jules of Gualer should be released, and you can you can hear me and Jeff Wickstrom and Peter Foxhoven talking about it. So thank you, Paul. All right, uh, the first story tonight is the Golgotha Dancers by Manly Wade Wellman. Uh, Wellman was born May twenty first, nineteen o three, in Portuguese West Africa, which is now the nation of Angola. He died April fifth, nineteen eighty six. His father was a doctor. His family moved to the United States while he was still a boy. His first published story was The Lion Roared in 1927. His first science fiction novel, The Invading Asteroid, was published in 1929. During the 20s, uh, he worked as a journalist. He wrote movie, movie reviews for the Wichita Beacon and worked as a court and crime reporter for the Wichita Eagle. He married a woman named Frances Obrist, a horror writer, uh, who was published in Weird Tales. Uh, the, the main um, part of his career spanned the 1940s to, to the 1980s, and one, one of the highlights I noted was that, was that he wrote the first issue of Captain Marvel Adventures for Fawcett Comics. Uh, Fawcett Comics. And he even, he even uh, testified in the, in the famous lawsuit by uh, National Comics, which is now DC Comics, against, against Fawcett for infringing on their... Uh, Superman copyright. Uh, the the Golgotha. We're, we're not going to talk about um, the main portion of Wellman's career because the the Golgotha dancers appeared in Weird Tales, October 1937. So, but before he he got really good and really famous. I I would argue that uh, of the people uh, of the on the appendix analyst, he's got to be pretty high up on the. Uh, prestige just because of all the things he you know he he was nominated for a Pulitzer he was you know he won an Edgar award he uh, beat out Faulkner for a different award I mean he, he had the chops mm-hmm. so yeah. uh, he's he, he's definitely famous for a reason 
uh, in s certain circles. Yeah, well, I, mean, I think that's true for for many of the authors on uh, on the Appendix N list. Uh, certainly, a lot of them were very highly regarded in their time, even if uh, now, you know, many decades later, they have become obscure. And and part of part of the mission of Appendix N is to is to uh, un unearth these these authors and and uh, uh, bring their knowledge to an to an unknowing. Uh, public and and hopefully we've we've helped to do that. All right, uh, Lewis, since since you're since you're brand new to the show, I will I will give you the the honor. Tell us what what is the Golgotha Dancers about? Okay, the Golgotha Dancers uh, is a very short story about a as far as I can tell a nameless protagonist. It's written in first person and. He uh, goes to a museum. He's a fan of, of the museum, and he's, he goes expecting to see a certain favorite picture of his, and it's been replaced um, uh, and by an unauthorized person with this other picture uh, that I believe is just called Gol Golgotha, and then the title of the story is Golgotha Dancers. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and he is fascinated by it, and while he's looking at it, the sec a security guard comes and tells him, he, he thinks he's the guy who snuck the painting in, but he didn't. And the security guard actually considers it a favor if the protagonist will take the painting and leave with it. So he does, and uh, he takes it home and puts it up in his room or in his uh, in his living room, I guess, over the fireplace. And hilarity ensues. <laughs> and by and by hilarity, I mean terror, uh, because it actually, I was, and I was really impressed by how how scary I found this. Uh, he wakes up. The, the painting itself is a picture of a man being nailed to uh, a cross by some frightening kind of shapeless, nebulous creatures, some of whom are dancing around in delight and some of whom are nailing the man down. And uh, the protagonist in the night awakes to find those creatures in his room and they begin to act out the painting, grabbing him and trying to hold him down and nail him. Uh, he ends up running, uh, turning on the lights, which for some reason causes them to sort of fade away. Uh, the noise he kicks up ends up attracting the attention of his neighbor, Miss uh, Dolby, who she is a nurse by training, and she thinks there must have been some sort of medical emergency because of all the carrying on. And he explains what happens to her, what happened to her. Uh, she takes it in stride. In fact, I'm just a little disturbed by her in general, but <laughs> that she takes it in stride and tells him he was probably dreaming the thing. And uh, then they actually, they end up having a date like the next day. Mm -hmm. And then the next night, he, he wakes up to find the creatures in his room again. And he ends up running, he wrestles through them and goes running down the hallway of his, of his home, his apartment, and yells for Miss Dolby. She appears at the door very quickly, again, disturbingly quickly. I was sure something was up with her. And uh, she uh, comes in and sees what's happening. She can see these things, so it's not all in his head. And that, that was a big revelatory moment mm -hmm. in the story. When you see that it's not just all, the, this is not an exercise of the author's insanity or a, cripple, or a crippled worldview that he's living in, but this is actually really seriously happening. And uh, they engage in a brief battle. Uh, they, they decide that the way to deal with these creatures is to uh, destroy the painting. And so he wrestles against the creatures while she starts to chop up the painting. And it works. The creatures vanish. They throw the, the, the remains of the painting on the fire and at the end of the story, as they're watching it burn, apparently he falls in love with her. The end. Yeah, it's a classic love story. <laughs> it's it's awesome. Um, yeah, it's 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 pretty darn good. I, it's, I, a, it's a lot of fun. Miss yeah. Miss Dolby acquits herself rather rather well. Uh, she she she's a bit like an 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 extra in a in a Doctor Who episode. I mean, Doctor Who is a show that 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 does not waste time with. The, the sort of uh, in incredulity people people don't stand stand around very much making excuses for what's happening they get into the action very very fast usually yeah. um, so 
and and I'm kind of grateful for that sometimes because you know that 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 takes up real estate in a story that I'd rather spend you know having having the plot at advance and yeah. so she's and she's pretty pretty darn cool. It's a pretty straightforward story, and I feel like it uh, it makes the most sense to me if I think of it as uh, Miss Dolby is the player character. Mm. And this is some kind of minor thing that's happening in her apartment as a solo adventure, her apartment building as a solo adventure while they're waiting for everybody else to show up for their Call of Cthulhu game. (laughs) Because the way that she takes everything in stride, the way that she, um, you know, listens to our nameless protagonist uh, whine about his painting and, uh, um, the way in which she comes in with a gun and is like, how do we defeat these things? I know we'll smash this painting that will fix it. That's a very, she's a very player character kind of character, uh, which is, I think charming and not something that there's a tremendous amount of precedent for in the stories that we've read, uh, characters that, that act like in my experience, player characters tend to act. Yeah, she's yeah, that's a much good point. stronger. Yeah, she's much stronger than uh, most of the uh, female characters of the age. Uh, I mean, you sh- we we've seen more than a few in in some of these stories that were just there for MacGuffins or to be rescued or what have you. She's kind of the opposite of those. And yeah, there's not a whole lot of characterization to either Miss Dolby or the nameless protagonist, but to the extent, certainly there are story roles. Miss Dolby is the action hero, and our nameless protagonist is the damsel in distress, distress whom she rescues. It actually reminded me of um, um, uh, the, the Hitchcock uh, women, to a certain extent. The female characters in his his stories tended to be very strong, quick-thinking uh, you know, decisive characters, and I think that th- this made me think of Hitchcock a little bit. I could see that. Yeah, interesting. See, I what I kept thinking as I kept reading it was, okay, why is she so calm? Why is she okay with this? I kept waiting for the other shoe to drop and her to reveal herself as the demon queen or some nonsense. See, this is why in the in the game world, uh, non-player characters find the player characters so terrifying is because they're always so calm and matter-of-fact and cheerful about things. You know, they make <laughs> jokes even while they're they're you know up to their elbows in slaughter. That's actually kind of why I, I, I became a fan of the show Supernatural. Is the first episode I saw, they were dealing with zombies, and they dealt with it like pe- player characters. They're like, okay, they're zombies. What kind of zombies? Are these the full-speed zombies, half-speed zombies? Do we need to sew a... A coin in their mouth or something, and yeah, it's and I was like, it's always as a gamer, I've had that conversation. <laughs> yeah, it's always fun to be watching a TV show and then suddenly, just not even from like particular fantasy references or anything, but just from the way that the characters are approaching uh, problems and talking about things, you're like, oh, this was this was made by by gamers. Mm-hmm. Um, like the TV show Leverage, with the creator of that actually wrote part of the uh, Annual of the Planes. It turned out, but I would have I would have guessed that it was made by gamers just from the way that uh, the various uh, main characters banter with each other. Mm-hmm. He also wrote the D and D comic for a while. Oh, that's right. Yeah, and and oh. there was a Leverage role playing game. Mm-hmm. So, so mm-hmm. there you go. Okay, uh, Lewis, why not why don't you tell us about the monsters? <laughs> okay, I I think this was one of the most D&D parts of the book for me, um of this story for me was the the create the creative description of the monsters. I just really enjoyed. They are they're these twisted oddly shaped things. They uh they're pink colored and they are they move in kind of strange alien partially human looking i think partially not at least in my mind's eye ways um they seem simultaneously very emotively expression expressive in their body movement 
but at the mm-hmm. same time, they don't seem to have faces. So whatever whatever expression is happening isn't coming through facial expression or through words. It's 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 very Silent Hill. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. They're, they're just there and then not there. I mean, it, it, I mean, it, it, except for the fact that we learned that that he that he's not dreaming. The 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 appearance of the monsters could could almost be a dream come come to life, and it's it's very love Lovecraftian in in that way. Since since Lovecraft did um, dealt a lot with with dreams and nightmares, um, like don't don't they seem to like when 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 he hits them. They, they they fly back like they're like they're almost like balloons made of made of made of rubber and then they then they they, they just pop back to to where they were yeah and that's something I thought was especially lovecraftian was the emphasis on the physical sensations of encountering them and the textures it's not just a visual description it's a very visceral description yeah, well they don't have viscera they're not they're not made out of meat Thank you, thank you, Jeff. <laughs> I'm just saying that's. Uh, I think that's a cool bit. You have the. Yeah. Um, you have uh, in the in the run up to Miss Dolby saving the day, our hapless protagonist is you know engaged in a in a sort of wrestling match slash fist fight with these things, and he says uh, that at one point that he he bites one. Um, Although I could be misremembering that, I think he says he bites it, and yeah, uh, it's it's, uh, it, it's sort of like biting into a it's like an uncooked shiitake mushroom. Uh, from the way he describes it, it's uh, it's spongy. Oh, so they're Not so they're it. they're fungoid, like like the yeah. fungi from outer space. Yeah, fungoid is uh, is indeed the word that comes up somewhere in there. I I, uh, I, I tended to picture them as. If you've ever, ever done oil painting or, or studied oil paintings, there's that sort of abstraction that comes when you're drawing really small human figures in the background. So it doesn't, if you looked really close at it, it wouldn't look like a real person. It would look like an abstracted person. And the descriptions that they gave is it made it sound like somebody took the abstraction, abstracted people and put them into the real world at full size. So you end up with this abstracted looking humanoid form yeah, i could i i could see this as a as a doctor who episode these are these are very doctor who monsters i could also see this whole the the, the whole book set up as an excellent setup for a D adventure i mean seriously you have to you know sit in the room in the dark and then the paint the monsters from the painting come out and you have to defeat them by destroying the painting and that's a great D setup I'm not sure it could really support more than just like a single encounter or like a side trek kind of thing. I can imagine going through like some kind of haunted house and dealing with this in one room, but I'm not sure that you could easily build a whole adventure around it without having to introduce a lot of a lot of additional material. Yeah, I mean, because the story the story is is very simple mm-hmm. in terms. It goes, yeah. you know, it goes A B C. Um, the monsters. the monsters are very memorable, and mm-hmm. I'm going to keep interrupting you, Jeff, until I finish this sentence. The <laughs> monsters are absolutely very memorable. I think they're easily the most memorable thing about the story. I like Miss Dolby, but she's mm-hmm. not exactly a uh, a deep character. Yeah, mo- monsters that you have to figure out how to defeat always always make for memorable in- encounters. I I think if you if you entered a, a castle or something and and you could you could see the painting but but not get to it right away um, and and you 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 had to fight through a couple rooms of these of these monsters to get to the painting and destroy it like that that might be interesting and and, and sort of pro- prolong the use use of, of these things maybe I could see it yeah, as a good like well. a 4e encounter where you have the the more tactical combat and you have the the painting at the far end of the room and you have these monsters in between you and you and it you have to get over to it. Sure. Or are they the trying to attack you from Gauntlet? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sorry. They're the monster generators from the Gauntlet video games. Then in that case. Yeah, I think that uh, it's one of the ways to keep 4e interesting is to introduce victory conditions that aren't just kill all the monsters. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. Well, I tell you, I thought a way, yeah, because I could see this, like you mentioned, as a one-shot short story for a D- for a D and D adventure. But as a dungeon master, 
my immediate thought was, what happened to the artist? Because the oh, way yeah. to turn this into mm -hmm. an ongoing story is to, man, what if this guy keeps producing these things? Because you know, the, the author of the story just leaves that hanging without explanation. But my player characters would immediately, or my players would immediately want to get on this guy's trail and track him down in case he's going to keep creating art. Yeah, the story of how the guy gets the painting is so bizarre. You know, a, a museum security guard just asks him to take it away. If this were right. a, um, if this were a, were a plot on on something like Supernatural, I think that the entire short story would be folded into the the cold open. You know, it would, we, they destroy the painting, the monsters would disappear, they would look at each other in confusion and be like, what was that? And then, boom, opening credits. And the episode would be about investigating where the painting came from, etc. Well, if, right. if, if this were a Lovecraft story, the, the painter would be like part of some, some cult, or he'd be allied with some, some kind of aliens. Or be Pikmin. Yes. Or, or he, may, maybe it was. You don't know. Hmm. If it were a Lovecraft story, then the painter would be some kind of immortal necromancer who would be up to no good. I'm not sure exactly what kind of weird evil plot could be advanced by distributing wicked magic paintings. Well, Lovecraft never worried about that. <laughs> plus, the, plus the whole thing of planting the painting in the art museum like that would just would be way too subtle for a Lovecraft villain. He would be out on the street corner saying, "I have evil magic paintings. Come get them." <laughs> Did, now is, right. is 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 Golgotha is is that a New Testament reference? I didn't I didn't get a chance to to look it up before we we started. It is. It is it's a it's reference a, to uh, where uh, the crucifixion happened. Okay. Yes. Yeah. It's a. Uh, it's the. It's the Greek version of a Hebrew slash Aramaic word, uh, Golgotha, uh, which means the place of the skull, and that was a little spot right outside of the city of Jerusalem where. In the gospel stories, Jesus was crucified. Oh, okay. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, I, I believe we've said all we need to say about the Golgotha dancers. Does anyone want to add any any final thoughts about about this particular story? <sighs> that I see a common thread in the two stories, which is the whole boy, what a strange way to meet and fall in love. <laughs> so, so that may be a good transition point to our next story. Sure. Yeah, right. I'm actually the uh, the guy who picked out the Pigby planet as the thing to accompany the Golgotha dancers with. There were a few stories bracketing the Golgotha dancers on either side of Appendix N, so to speak. And mm -hmm. the one of them that seemed like the best fit was the Pygmy planet. Um, which manages to tell what I would argue is structurally a very a similar story um, with a lot of different um, like props and flash and um, mm -hmm. superficial stuff, and also in, in in quite a few more words. All right. So b yes. b before we before we we actually talk about the Pygmy Planet, let me just take a moment to remind our listeners, that Jack Williamson was born in 1908 in Arizona Territory, and he died November 10, 2006. He was often called the Dean of Science Fiction after the passing of Robert Heinlein. He read amazing stories as a young man. He was influenced by Miles J. Brewer, a doctor who wrote science fiction, and also by A. Merritt, an, uh, who is also an, an Appendix N author. He was a published author by the 1930s. Isaac Asimov was a fan of his. He continued to write into his 90s, and he died at the age of 98 in 2006. The Pygmy Planet first appeared in Astounding Stories in February of 1932, and, according to Wikipedia, was even illustrated on the cover. So, uh, Jeff, why don't you tell us what, what the Pygmy Planet is about, as you were about to do. Um, okay, well, I'll give you the real short version. There's this guy, Larry, who just kind of wanders in to a mad scientist's lair. Uh, the mad scientist's lair contains a uh, miniature planet um, and a girl with a gun and a monster. 
and the girl with the gun is trying to fight off the monster. The monster grabs the girl and then flies into the uh, the pygmy planet because there's this complicated shrink ray, growth ray apparatus set up around it. And our hero, uh, Larry, grabs a convenient model airplane, which he flies into the shrink ray until he shrinks down, until he can fit on the pygmy planet. Then he goes to the pygmy planet, and despite it being the entire size of a planet, you know, um, proportionally speaking, he manages to find where the woman is very quickly and easily, um, although it doesn't work out all that well for them. Um, there are some horrible monsters. Uh, the mad scientist is there. I forget exactly how we get from there to the end, but eventually the uh, hero and the girl get off of the evil planet and uh, live happily ever after. Some, something in, in, in the way you summarized that story, and I, I'm not sure what it was, made, made me think this whole scenario would, would be great for one of those Infocom text adventure games. The uh, the beams of light that grow and shrink things really feels like a text adventure game puzzle mm-hmm. kind of thing. Yeah, there's there, there's a whole apparatus that that uh, Larry has to has to fig, figure out um, before he can he can go rescue rescue the girl. Oh, and this is the one with the uh, the big steam hammer in it. Yes, yes. Yeah. So I they 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 find uh, the scientist who in, in, invented this this whole thing, and he he's either dead or unconscious, and he's he's tied to this to this hammer, and he he basically dies so that we the audience can see how the how the how the hammer works, because uh, the protagonists are are clearly not interested in 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 saving him, uh, and then the, the then the woman is tied to 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 the hammer. So finally, the hero is motivated to do something. Uh, so he he basically spends spends days uh, hacking at at her chains and at, at one point he it's a it's it's a steam powered uh, giant hammer so he 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 climbs up on the hammer and he turns a valve to sort of block or redirect the steam so that the machine uh, blows up basically uh, and and then they they just they just run for it. I'm, I'm going to take Jeff's place on this story. Uh, uh, on the last time yeah. we, we had a Williamson story, he, he was the one that said, this is not a good story. I'm going to be the one that says this. This is not a good story. I, uh, I think it's better than the Legion of Space. <laughs> I, I would agree that it's better than the Legion of Space. I'm not sure that I would go to bat for it and call it an out-and-out good story. Um, I, I, I think it's, I, it's I think fun. the thing is, uh, it, it give it gets rid of a lot of the same problem, a lot of the problems that Legion of Space had, and replaces them with others. Uh, and, uh, yes, it is somewhat fun, but oh, my head hurt every time they he tried to explain what was going on. I was like, no, it doesn't make sense. How did... It, it how- works if you visualize it as being like a... It, uh, a description of a cartoon show, mm-hmm. and the cartoon is really clearly aimed at like five-year-olds. It's it's very comic booky. I mean, it's it's if if you can buy Ant Man, which which is patently ridiculous, you can you can maybe buy this buy this. I, I would not be surprised. If I feel Ant-Man like that's unfair Ant-Man. to Ant Man. <laughs> I, I I would not be surprised if Ant Man and the Atom were both heavily in, influenced by this story at some point uh, you know, somewhere down the line the writers might have read this well, I, I i think shrinking, because it's... shrinking man stories have been have been part of pulp science fiction for a long time i don't, I don't know that well this, this story, story is also quite old i i think you bring up a good point mm-hmm. it's entirely possible that this is the very first story to feature a shrink ray um i don't know that it's i, I would bet any money on that but it's at least possible uh, yeah. uh, listeners, if, if you can independently verify Jeff Wickstrom's assertion, uh, do let us know. Yeah, I, I think I was concerned by the the authors. I mean, when I'm reading sci-fi, and maybe maybe I shouldn't think of this as sci-fi. I, mean, I should think of it as as pulp adventure. But when I'm reading sci-fi, and the author is going to give me a scientific explanation, I expect some science in it. And well, this uh, is pretty John W. Campbell. You have to really. Look sure. at it in a in a different set of contexts. Sure. Yeah, I, yeah, I guess that's right. But I think for me, one of the biggest jumps because what this reminded me of was 
So if you shrink, time goes by faster, which seemed about the same school of physics for me as if Superman flies around the planet backwards, it will reverse time and we can save Lois Lane. It seemed like that kind of a thing. Well, they, they explain that uh, when, when you shrink, the, the distances between the synapses of your, of your brain are shorter, so it seems like time is going faster. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and apparently you can breathe even though the, the molecules of oxygen aren't shrinking with you. I, I don't understand. Um, I, I, also, I, being I, shrunk I, makes you talk to yourself a lot. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, he, he, he talks to himself even before he shrunk. The, 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 yeah. the story starts out with Larry Manahan, who is, who's, who's working for an advertising agency, saying, Nothing ever happens to me. I wish I could go on an adventure. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, this, yeah, he's the yeah, Luke Skywalker guy. There's basically three parts to the story. Act one, Larry discovers the pygmy planet and the girl Agnes and the monster and the shrink ray and the growth ray and so forth. Act two is Larry walking around on the surface of the pygmy planet talking to himself a bunch. And then act three comes when Larry finds the steam hammer that that, um, first the mad scientist and then Agnes are uh, sacrificed to by the monsters who worship the steam hammer as a god, presumably. That's the closest thing to to motivation that we're given uh, about the the monsters. Right, so so to to go... Also in contrast... Go ahead. I was going to say, in contrast to the previous story, uh, the girl in here is pretty much there to be rescued. Yeah, well, she's the she, she's the hapless protagonist of this story, and Larry is the Miss Dolby of this story. Clearly, yeah. well, Agnes Agnes Sterling acquits herself uh, a, a little bit better than uh, Princess uh, M- MacGuffin from the Legion of Space. Uh, she she <laughs> at, she I mean she 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 carries a gun, she points it and fires it. She she hits what she's aiming at. Um, so. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 I mean, it's it was... not much, but it, it, it's, a, it's a little bit better. <laughs> I mean, the, the well, fact it... that the gun isn't able to penetrate the alien armor is, is not her fault. Right. So. I also, by, at the end of the story, the protagonist destroys a world. <laughs> well, yeah. it, was, it was an evil world that shouldn't exist because science had gone too far. Oh. Larry yes, Manahan, the genocide. Yeah, every yeah. every person on that on that planet has to have been as evil as the machine cultists who captured his. Well, Agnes Agnes explained that the that that the machine monsters had wiped out all all other sentient life on that on that planet, and they were mm. the, were the, were the only ones left, and and they were and they were going to conquer Earth. Somehow yeah. somehow she she knew all of this. <laughs> yeah, I I found a lot of that was a big glaring ethical issue thing to me on both ends of the story, which is fine, you know, a story should explore well, yeah. ethics, but we got two different option men playing one, God. Got, yeah. Turn off What's the growth that? ray. Option option right. 1 is turn off the growth ray. Option 2 right. is destroy the planet. Both of those are going to deal with the threats of the monsters boiling up from the planet and taking over the world. Um you just so you have to say which is which is the better choice, destroying the growth ray or destroying the planet? And um, you know the growth ray is it's a it's an exciting new piece of technology, and the planet is just a uh, it's made of dirt. Right. <laughs> so hooray, genocide. Yeah, uh, apparently yeah. it it doesn't even have a molten core because because when, when when he punches it like it, it it there's there's just a lump of dirt on the floor, and right. can be warmed by a simple lamp. Um, you know, because that's what the sun's like for us. Yeah, this is—it's just—it's it's a child's view. Of so, so what to be to be clear, is, looks like. To be clear, this is this this is a a green sphere floating in a in a laboratory. So it's it's its atmosphere is the size of the entire room. It is it is floating between these two rays with with no obvious means of suspension. So, 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 so Magnets, uh, right. Larry theorizes at one point. <laughs> so there's, there's some, 
there's some kind of invisible uh, anti-gravity device. The, the way that you get to the planet is you, you have to stand in the shrinking ray until you are the same size as this conveniently miniaturized pl airplane. Then you get in the airplane and shrink even even more. And, and so you, you have to get into the airplane at just the right moment. Otherwise, you'll be too, too big or too small to operate the controls. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> There's a lot of amazing coincidence in this story for sure. I'm, it's a car, it's yeah. it's basically a a cartoon for five year olds. Mm -hmm. yeah, it, it, I mean, yeah, I feel if, a little if, bad. If I, I feel bad about it at this point. I I, uh, I, I guess my like expectations so low going into it <laughs> that I felt like it had a certain amount of of, of archaic charm. If it were sold as some sort of surreal tale. You know, like the little prince or something, or it, it's supposed to be. You know, this is a fantasy. You know, we're just going to toss some random bits here and there, and it'll be surreal and it'll be kind of fun. I probably would have liked it more, but because it is actually sold as science fiction, it bugged me a lot. It's an astounding story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you know, this is our our Halloween. Spooktacular, and we talked about the monsters and the Golgotha dancers, and I feel like the one, you know, D and D esque thing about the Pygmy Planet, uh, the thing that that is actually almost cool, is these these monsters themselves that we've been referring to. They are the, uh, they are giant the, brains in jars. So yeah, giant brains in yeah. jars. They have tentacles, but they're metal tentacles, and they have bat wings, but they're metal bat wings. <laughs> Uh, they're basically like Mego brain cases with uh, in, in 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 costumes. They are they are metal before there was metal. Now they make good uh, D and D bad guys. <laughs> I, I, I will agree. Uh, if you wanted to make a monster that you know that aesthetically had those uh, those those aspects to it to to you know throw at the the PCs that would weird them out. I think you know it's a yeah, very it's distinct. Of, Look, and I'm genuinely surprised that it's not a. This did not become a a standard, familiar D and D monster, at least on par with the Displacer Beast. Mm. Um, you know the the brain in a giant uh, metal monster body, but not a like a Godzilla monster, not a you know humanoid cyborg monster, but rather a big jar with tentacles and spider legs and uh, metal bug wings. It's, it's, it's almost... Yeah, a, it's like uh, a, that's cool. It's, it's almost a yeah. bit like a Modron. Not, not quite. Yeah. They did it's a cyber yeah, aberration. It's what it is. It's a cyber aberration. There yeah. we go. Mm -hmm. it, it, they did have a brain-in-a-jar monster in 3.5 and uh, I don't know if yeah, they ever it, made it. It just, it just sat on a shelf and, and psychically attacked you. It, it, it didn't have bat wings. Yeah, it was it was very different than this. Uh, the the yeah. fact that there is a brain inside is almost incidental. Um, yeah, it's. I mean, this this is a while, also a. That it's just a, a jar of colored fluid. Right. He doesn't see the brain immediately. This is th this is also a a very Doctor Who monster. Both 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 the last monster and 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 this this monster could be could be Doctor Who Who monsters. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now I was wondering because I when I read both of these stories, I tried to intentionally force them through a D and D grid in my head. Mm-hmm. To, mm -hmm. to to ponder how they could possibly have influenced Gygax. And I almost wondered if it wasn't so much in this story. If I'm assuming he read this particular story and really liked it, so I know I'm stretching. But, uh, but honestly, I thought more about the techniques of the storytelling rather than the concepts of the story itself. Mm -hmm. um, how so? Like he did a, well, because he does a really good job, I think, of explaining from the protagonist's point of view, like a DM would have to explain to a player all this weird alien stuff that suddenly becomes alien to him in some cases. Like, he starts shrinking in the lab, and suddenly the, the lab just looks so different. And uh, you know, he describes it, I think, very well, and mm -hmm. communicates 
I think, how I would want to explain it to my players in a way that they could get a hold of it, you know. And, uh, and the same thing with g- parts of going into the world, the experience he has. He's, he's, ex- he's describing, now I don't think it's a particularly cool way to describe what happens when you go through a shrink ray. I, I don't think I would have chosen to do it that way, but I'm not the famous author, so that's fine. Um, but just explaining the concepts mm-hmm. of what that was like for him, explaining the experience of the protagonist. I thought that was useful as a DM thinking about trying to explain things to my players that they can't necessarily see. Yeah, I, I, I no. thought pre presenting the whole the whole apparatus and 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 having having the players have to have to have to figure it out is is, is very early guy Gygaxian D D and D except in a in a in a Gygax D and D module, he he wouldn't even bother to explain it to you. He'd be perfectly happy to let the player step into the shrink ray and shrink to nothing, or step into the (laughs) giant ray, and then then he'd just have the room crush them. Yeah, (laughs) it's true. Yes. (laughs) Well, I I feel like you may be onto something there because when I I have been describing this story several times as being something like a cartoon for five-year-olds, and part of that is that everything is described in a very straightforward uh, very straightforward way with a lot of detail and physicality mm-hmm. um, you know lovecraft would would just refer to things as being formless or unnatural or suggestive and uh, here we get its body or its central part was a tube of transparent crystal, an upright cylinder rounded at upper and lower ends. It was nearly a foot in diameter and four feet long. It seemed filled with a luminous purple liquid. About the cylinder were three bands of greenish glistening metal. Attached to the lower band were four jointed legs of the same bright green metal upon which the strange thing stood. Um, sure. And, and, and yeah, can't so you just see that very... in, a text box, in a, a text box in a module from the 80s? Can't you just see that? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, yeah, it's 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 very vivid and it's written in a very a very straightforward way that a lot of things do not get written in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I suppose and, that's to its credit. And we've we've talked about in the previous episodes. There's a lot of science fiction in early D and D, and there were mechanical monster creatures of alien origin in a couple of the adventures. You could absolutely see that kind of influence uh, th- this kind of monster as an influence on those things mm-hmm. okay um, I, I I'll think... tell you next time I'm running d and I'm going to include these uh, these brains in jars with uh, tentacles and bat wings Ooh, if you if you stat them up maybe we can maybe maybe you'll put them on jeffwick.com I might you never know ah Okay, uh, have we have we said all that, that there is to say about uh, the pygmy planet? Does anyone have any have any final uh, words of insight? Um, I I actually I was in the same room as the writer once, um, and I was young and stupid and didn't know who he was. I kind of wish I'd, I, I you know taking the time to talk to him. I I have a few stories that. that work that way because I grew up going to science fiction conventions so there were a lot of people I met along those lines that it was like this person is really important I've never heard of them and then now I've heard of them and read their stuff and I kind of wish I had talked to them (laughs) well you know we were talking when we talked about A Martian Odyssey by Stanley Weinbaum about how it felt like a science fiction story from the 50s that was written a few decades early this feels to me like a science fiction story from yeah a few decades uh, a few decades before the 30s which is when it was written mm-hmm. one thing that. that going through appendix n has uh, has really demonstrated to me is how the genre changed over the course of the first part of the 20th century mm-hmm. and uh, this is an example of that yeah yeah i don't i don't know this 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 story feels like straight out of out of a, a golden age uh, superhero comic book to me, which 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 was the thirties. So mm-hmm. um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I uh, t- since we're talking about meeting meeting famous people, I I, I remember meeting uh, Sandy Peterson at 
at Gen Con, who thank goodness is still alive and, and just not having any, any questions for him. I think, <laughs> I think I said, you're Sandy Peterson. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's about the right response for Sandy Peterson. No, yeah, that's, that's fair. I, 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 I have a, a, a similar experience with Julie Schwartz, who was the editor for a lot of these writers. Like he was a Yes, he was. Uh, he was a uh, editor at DC Comics for a good number of years. But before that, he was an editor and agent for people like H.P. Lovecraft, and wow. later on in like Ray Bradbury. Um, and I, I met the guy, and I'm you know I got to ha- have dinner with him because he was my mom was a guest at the convention, and so was he. So there was the whole thing, and I didn't know who the hell the guy was. I knew he was a guy that was in comics, and wow, I wish I had spent more time talking to that guy. Yeah, if only we were doing the show 10 years ago, we could have some of these people on the show. But uh. Oh, man. Oh, well. Um, yeah, of, of, of all the appendix and authors, uh, only Michael Moorcock is still alive, and I highly doubt we will, we will get him on the show. But you never... I think he's undead. I, I think he's undead. Oh, okay. Well, I, I'm I'm not opposed to having uh, the the undead on on the show. So, uh, Mr. Mr. Moorcock, if you're listening and you, and, and you would like to uh, be on the show, um, give next us next year's Halloween spooktacular. <laughs> yes. Right. There. There you go. No matter what time of year it is. <laughs> since since we can't get uh, Vincent Price. Well, well, yes, but uh, to be fair. Uh, Michael Moorcock may actually eat your soul just for talking about his book. Um, so oh. he, he has a he he's been known to go after people. <laughs> oh, uh, maybe we won't yeah. have him on the show then. I don't I don't feel like I don't feel like being uh, sued. All right. He's not quite Harlan Ellison level, but he's close. Okay. All right. Well. Uh, <laughs> I this this has been a a very spooktacular Thanksgiving Christmas episode of the <laughs> the Appendix N podcast. Uh, before we close, Lewis, tell us where on the internet can people find you if they want to leave a comment. The quickest way to find me is through Twitter at Rev Lewis Brenton R E V L O U I S B R E N T O N. Are you actually a reverend? I am. Oh, awesome! Cool. All right. Yeah, uh, one of one of my those degrees we were talking about earlier is a doctorate in practical theology. Yeah. Excellent. Well, preach it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jeremiah, where on the internet can people find you? Uh, the basics of the game wordpress dot com is where I post a, a lot of my stuff. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I have the YouTube show uh, episodes posted there and my uh, podcast. So that's a good place. Awesome. And, Jeff, where can people find those stats of uh, the, the Pygmy Planet machine monsters that, that you're going to write? In the event that I do actually write them up, they will appear alongside most of the rest of what I write at jeffwick.com. J-E-F-F-W-I-K.com. Ask for it by name. Okay, folks, this wraps up another thrilling episode of the Appendix N Podcast. If you have any thoughts or comments, questions, or concerns about anything we said on this show, please send an email to thetomeshow at gmail.com. Put Appendix N in the subject line so that it gets forwarded to me. If you've read a book by any of the Appendix N authors that we did not cover on the show and would like to submit a short review or commentary, we would welcome your input. Our very next episode will be a discussion of H.P. Lovecraft's novel At the Mountains of Madness, and the episode after that will be a discussion of Robert E. Howard's novel The Hour of the Dragon. Following those two episodes, dear listeners, we will begin our discussion of The Hobbit by J.R.R. Tolkien. Tolkien is an author that has been discussed and commented upon many times over, and he's also my personal favorite author, so I really wanted to do something special and a little different. The Hobbit will be broken up into three episodes, and each portion of the novel will be paired with another short story, or in one case, an essay, by J.R.R. Tolkien. 
My hope is that these pairings make our discussions a little more interesting and expose some readers to some stories they may not otherwise have read. The first part will be chapters 1 through 6 of The Hobbit, paired with the short story Rover Random. The second part will be chapters 7 through 11 of The Hobbit, paired with the essay on fairy stories. And the third part will be chapters 12 through 19, paired with the short story Farmer Giles of Ham. Rover Random, On Fairy Stories, and Farmer Giles of Ham can all be found in a very excellent hardcover collection called Tales from the Perilous Realm, which I think any Tolkien fan should own. They have also been published in various other collections, so check Amazon.com or your favorite local bookstore to see how you can obtain them. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, this has been a Tome Show production of Appendix N, Episode 26, The Golgotha Dancers by Manly Wade Wellman and The Pygmy Planet by Jack Williamson. Thank you so much for listening.